So good morning, everybody. I learned once that you should never rush into somebody else's pulpit and start bellowing away without respecting the space. So I wanted to say thank you to both Todd and Bill for giving me an opportunity to preach. And I wanted to thank all of you for trusting me with the next 20 minutes of your lives. <laughs> this is a trusting situation. Carl and I have been in this community in some way for the past four years. We had as accidental Anglicans visiting and sort of discovering our way. And at some point, we were asked to become interns. Jaden and Hannah are two, our first two. They grew up running around early morning during setup. Elliot was born here, like not here, but while we were here. <laughs> and you all loved our family in such a big way during that time. And Carla and I, along with Jin, were just ordained to the priesthood not even three weeks ago. And now I feel like it is the first time I've been asked to drive the family car. <laughs> and I'm thinking, it's no big deal. We're just going to go down to the grocery store. It'll be easy. Then I remember it's Trinity Sunday. <laughs> like the only Sunday in our worship that's dedicated to a doctrine and that there's a Dennis Ockholm in our congregation. <laughs> but he's not here. <laughs> and not only that, but it's our church's namesake. So we're not just going to the store. We're going to Oregon, y'all. So I better not mess this up. Because I don't want to lose the privileges to the family car. Then I remembered what Swiss Reformed theologian Karl Barth once said. No one can say that they know and no one is competent to declare the doctrine of the Trinity. So there's comfort that I don't know everything, amen? Right. And there's so many things that we do not know. Just standing here and thinking, like, Trinity? Like, honestly, where do I even start with that? I could give you ideas or 10-cent words, but is that really what we need right now? Does the, word really, the world really need 10-cent words? Does the world really need some sort of well-articulated, nuanced conversation about a central Christian doctrine? I would say, yeah, to some extent, like we need to have these nuanced ideas about God so that we can see the world as God sees it, but there's just so much we don't know. There's so much we don't know about the world or about God or even the Christian life. And we could beat up ourselves over it because we haven't figured it out or we could spend tens of thousands of dollars on seminary education or <laughs> we could become apathetic to the whole situation. But then Jesus comes along and he offers us a word. No, John 16 is a part of a longer final discourse running over several chapters. No, these are the parts of Jesus' final words that he says to his motley crew before he's being taken away by the authorities. And here, the disciples have gathered in this evening. They think they're just celebrating another Passover and what we call Maundy Thursday. And that night, Jesus is betrayed. But before he is, we find ourselves oddly like the disciples, or we wish we were. Like, we wish we were sitting at Jesus' feet right now. We wish he was here with us and that we were hearing him and learning from him directly. Like, we wish we could behold his face as the light of the candle shines on him and hearing the sweet, soft reverberations of his voice. That's where we wish we were. But we aren't. 
We don't see Jesus. We aren't with him physically. He isn't here in Needman Chapel physically, no matter how much we want him to be. He isn't in the flesh to flesh out the Christian life for us or to guide us as to what it means to be his apprentice for the 21st century. And we wish we knew so much more than we do. Just as the disciples were waiting for more teachings, he turns to them and he turns to us and he says, I have many things to say to you, but you're not able to handle them. I have many things to say to you, but you aren't able to handle them. Now, I'm not quite sure if this is a comforting compliment or a backhanded burn. <laughs> like, it's okay you don't know everything, because you can't handle them. Is he saying we don't know everything and we should be okay with that, or we don't know everything because we haven't arrived yet? And so often we still think if we just knew a little bit more, we could solve so many problems. If we could just figure out science a little bit better, we could eradicate disease. If we could just figure out wealth just a little bit better, we could eradicate poverty. If we could just. If we could just figure out what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus today, the Christian life would be so much easier. So then what does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus today? What does it mean to be an apprentice during political turmoil when we live in this post-truth age? What does it mean to be an apprentice amongst a dying middle class? What does it mean to be an apprentice when we hear about school shootings every week? What does it mean to be an apprentice when our pastor and bishop is moving to Nashville? What does it mean to be an apprentice when you get a pink slip? What does it mean to be an apprentice when, as I heard recently, you have more bills than checks. What does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus in Orange County in 2019? And oh, how we long that we could just sit with Jesus and hear him and have him teach us directly. Then we could just go on, follow marching orders. Instead of giving us answers, he says, I have more to teach you but you can't handle him right now. You know, there's so much we don't know, but the little bit we do know doesn't even help us or comfort us. The little bit we do know actually causes us stress and despair and puts us in some sort of existential crisis. I recently ran into a young mother and she had her seven-year-old daughter at the farmer's market and we had struck up a conversation because our daughters quickly became friends as children often do. And perhaps we can learn from them. And in the midst of the conversation, she looked to me and said, we should set up a play date. Here's my landline. Call me between this time and this time. I was like, well, why don't you have a cell phone? She's like, because I'm getting so stressed out with all this news and my phone and technology and the Southern California living of get busy living or get busy dying sort of, well, in all honesty, we're going to live off the grid. We're moving to Mexico. No phone, no social media, no contact. It's just me, me, my husband, my daughter, and the Mexican beach. No, she doesn't know everything, but she knows enough to stress, and she knows enough to lose hope. And when we know stuff, even if it's just a little bit, we lose hope. I recall how jostling and unsettling it was just to see a turtle with a straw in its nostril. Now, I don't have to have the knowledge of a marine biologist to know that this isn't right. 
But now it's caused me stress to where if I go to In-N-Out and reach for a straw, I'm a sinner. And I don't have to be an international journalist to hear the reports from the Sudan and hear it with a sense of despair. Like, we don't know everything and we don't know much, just enough to lose hope. And these kind of issues can really mess with our reading of Romans 5 and Paul. You know, when we read about hope and sufferings, we sort of flip them in on themselves. We see Paul's talk sometimes of of suffering as something that's purely spiritual or individualistic. We don't really encounter that with Paul. Paul is talking about concrete sufferings, concrete hopes happening in a Christian community, in a church. We like to talk about Paul from above, as if he's sitting in some Mediterranean resort, writing a blurb that can be read on a, from the comforts of our individual phones. And we're ch- tempted to treat Paul as sort of an introspective individualist. But he's not. He uses too much we language and you all language. No, Paul would have made a great Texan. He says y'all just about every chance he gets. <laughs> so his exhortations aren't to you or to you or to you or to you. No, they're to all of you and us all. They're to you all and us all. So when we read something like Romans, we have to remember a couple of things. Because Paul's writing to a community, not an individual, and not just any community, to a broken and confused community, a church that's wondering, what does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus if Jesus isn't physically present with us? You know, he's writing to a church that 10 years ago, before this letter was written, was severely disrupted. You know, the Jews had been expelled from Rome because Jews and Jewish Christians had this infighting and the the emperor didn't want to deal with it. So he kicked them out. Now somehow the church found a way to survive and they're coming back together. But as they're coming back together, there's this danger of splintering again. Another thing we have to keep in mind is we might be celebrating Trinity Sunday, but we have to remember that Paul and the author of John, they didn't have Trinitarian language. They didn't have the creed that we get to have today. You know, they didn't have the benefits of 400 years of theological conversation. They had to rely on experience. And they had to trust that experience. And they had to have hope in that experience And all of this happened in the context of the you all and we all community, in the context of church. So when Paul speaks of hope, we have to revisit what we mean by the word hope. So we have to listen to the way that we use that word in everyday conversation. Well, I hope my team wins. I hope the check comes in time. I hope there's no traffic on the 91 as we drive to the Holy Trinity this morning so I can preach. (laughs) You know, there's this sort of personal investment in a desired outcome. The hopes that we talk about are particular and tangible and they're immediate. We hope for things right now. We also use the word hope when things don't work out. We have despairing hope or a situation is seen as hopeless. But Paul isn't talking about that immediate sort of hope. He's not talking about some sort of pie-in-the-sky hope. No, what we read here is a hope that's based on God's goodness and his longevity of him working out that goodness. 
rather than our own immediate experiences and wishes and expectations. And Christian hope is not the enabling of some personal goal or achievement. Christian hope is the process of a response to God's gifts and his promised intentions. That God's goals are the center of our hope. That God's agency, his working, is the primary. Christian hope isn't about our personal goals or achievements or success. It's about relying on God's actions in faith and believing that God is active that our triune God is a living God who's active and at work. And in our Romans reading, God is the subject of active verbs. We're the passive ones in this, that we receive all of this. We don't really do very much. That's why when we receive the Eucharist, we do it with open hands. We receive we don't take. We receive the grace of God. We don't take it. And with a posture of openness and humility, we receive what the triune God sends, how he comes, how he teaches, how he acts, what he speaks, what he chooses, what he intends and what he promises. You know, you always catch those different polls that we'll read. They always reassure us that America still believes in some sort of supreme being. But it's not this one. It's not, it's not the active God. You know, the pollster God is a God who isn't necessary to explain anything anymore. That pollster God doesn't really do anything and we all have to admit, all of us sitting in these pews together, that we're affected by this. So we have to keep in check what we mean by the words hope in the glory of God. What is our hope? Who is God? Now, what Jesus says about the Spirit really puts that pulsar God to the test. The Spirit of truth will speak, will declare to you all and we all. And whatever the Spirit hears, the Spirit will guide us in all truth. That the declaring, guiding, teaching action of God, the Holy Spirit, finds itself at odds with that pollster God. So our Christian hope is that we worship a God who speaks directly through the Holy Spirit. And this speaking gives us hope, hope in God's actions, hope that God will act because God does act because God has acted. You know, Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And if there's one thing I've learned from Todd over the past four years, it's that Jesus is smart. Jesus knows what he's saying, and Jesus knows what he's doing. And obviously, he thought it better to leave the church with the Spirit than to remain with it. So we have to trust this. We have to hope in this but there are so many things we do not know. But when the spirit of truth comes, not if, but when the spirit of truth comes, there are so many things we don't know, but God, God knows everything and God is faithful. 
So if there was ever a call for the church, it would be to listen, to hear the Spirit speak. To hear and act in the church is to be called with others, you all and we all. It's to act in obedience, to be with others, to listen. Listening is faith. Faith is not a belief. Faith is listening. Faith is grasping the promise that we should all be led into this truth. Listening means knowing God. And without faith, without this listening, all of our actions are irrelevant. We still have more to hear. But we can't hear everything Jesus wants to tell us because he's not telling us everything. So if there was ever a call for the church, a call for Holy Trinity, it would be to listen to the Holy Trinity. It'd be to listen to what the Spirit is speaking. So we should take a posture of waiting to listen. Because God, the Holy Spirit, is faithful to speak and is still speaking. He proclaims from the cross of Christ where he suffered with us. He proclaims from the grave where Christ died with us. He proclaims from the empty grave where God raises us up to. He proclaims from the ascension where Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father, making room for you and me. He proclaims from that table where Christ is present with us here and now. He proclaims on my van ride on the way home. He proclaims when we're fighting with our spouses or when we're grounding our kids or when we're getting fired or when we're attending funerals and weddings or when our church is in transition, the Spirit is still speaking The Holy Spirit proclaims that God owns the future, that despite our current circumstances, God owns the future, that he declares all the goodness of heaven and all the goodness of God and all the goodness of creation, all that God owns, the entire universe is at his disposal of a loving, good God. And this has been poured into our hearts that the Holy Spirit is pouring out the love of Christ, overflowing our lives so that nothing can drench out the fire of the Holy Spirit and nothing will ever shut his mouth up from proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus saves, that we are all at peace with God. And this is our hope. We might not know very much, but we have hope. We have hope and reminded as Todd always reminds us, that so long as we are in the kingdom of God, we have nothing to fear. And Bart once said, the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that the God who reveals himself according to scripture is both to be feared and to be loved. To be feared because he can be God. To be loved because he can be our God. If we're listening, amen.